How many times have you uh, heard people say things like, expect the unexpected? That's paradoxical, isn't it? How would you expect the unexpected? Because if you expected it and it came true, then it was expected, not unexpected. I think more to the point is you should expect the expected, right? How many times do we just miss the thing that we said we were expecting, then it happens, and then we're shocked? Like, every James Bond villain pretty much falls susceptible to this If I were a James Bond villain, my plan would be to pull out a gun, hold it to his temple, and then pull the trigger and be done with him, right? I know that sounds violent, but I'm a James Bond villain in that scenario, and I'm just saying I would get rid of him then. But what do they always do? They always come up with an elaborate way of killing Bond that takes 10, 15 minutes, and they always have to jet off to conquer the world and leave him there with about 10 or 15 minutes to get himself free. And then, oh, he he got out. How unexpected, you know? Or there's the, uh, you know, ladies, there's the rom-com example of the same thing, you know, the the kind that I'm talking about. Like there's the guy that's pining away for the beautiful, unaccessible woman. And then meanwhile, Julia Roberts has a ball cap on with her hair up in it and big, you know, Coke bottle glasses. And we just don't see that one coming, do we? That that those two are going to end up together. You're like, where are you going with this? Well, this, the, the question uh, that I have today has to do with the people of God, God's Old Testament people, Israel, this, the children of Abraham. How did they not expect Messiah? And, of course, as soon as you ask the question, you realize the answer is they were. They were completely expecting, but it's like they should have been expecting what they were expecting because when Jesus comes, they completely miss it. And as Gentiles kind of coming late to the party, maybe we look at that and go, well, if, if Jesus is the Messiah and we hold him to be so, how would it, you know, it, it should have been so obvious, how did they miss it? And I don't know that I have an answer for you today, but I will say uh, what this text shows us is the expectation was there. Like that part, you can't miss. The Jewish people were expecting Jesus, the Messiah, but they didn't see it. They didn't recognize it when it happens. There's all kinds of Old Testament passages that we could go to. We could cruise the whole Old Testament. There's so much there that that points us to Jesus. But we're just going to look at Isaiah 9 today. Actually, we're just going to look at the first seven verses, and we're going to fly over those pretty quickly. But I I just want you to see the enormous expectancy that was there. The Jewish people expected joy with Messiah. They expected joy. Chapters 7 and 8 are, which we didn't look at, but they set up chapter 9, obviously, and they go into the whole idea, the whole thing of uh, this prophetic look at Assyria coming and destroying the northern nation of Israel. So Judea in the south fell to Babylon, 586 B.C., but before that, Assyria came in, took off the northern tribes, the northern kingdom of Israel, in 722 B.C., and, and those chapters get at that. Chapter 8 finishes that, that look at the deportation that's going to take place, and it pictures the people of God um, distressed, hungry, in gloom of anguish. It's not a cheery picture at all. And how bad would that have been? How bad would it have been to be the children of Abraham, the natural children according to the flesh of Abraham? God had promised the land to Abraham and to his descendants forever. And there they are. You know, they've already rejected the king. They they rejected the Davidic king a couple hundred years or so earlier. Um, But there they are 
having rejected the God of their fathers, and they're carried off, and they're just, they're dispersed to the nations. They're just dispersed to, to the four winds. Where was God's promise? Isaiah 9, 1 through 3, look at it now. That's, this is the context of what we're looking at then. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. And that's talking about the nation of Israel in the north there. In the former times he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now you're saying, well, what is that? Those are the northern tribes, the ones closest to the border that would have been first overrun. But in the later times he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoils. So what's he predicting there? First of all, he's predicting earlier the the downfall of the northern kingdom and the overrunning of that kingdom first and foremost in that that area around Zebulun and Naphtali. That's like being on the front seat of an airplane. Do any of you ever pay for that seat? No, this is great, Ben Kansas. We're not we're not flying up front, right? But you know how that works out. Like initially they realized uh, after, you know, I don't know how it didn't take long to figure out when planes crash, what happens. Um, but they found out pretty quickly that it was the front of the plane that gets the first of the impact. And not that it makes a huge, if you all die in a fiery, you know, what, what difference does a fraction of a second make? But uh, the point is, if you're sitting in the front, you're going to get it first. Like that's, you're, you're going to be, you're going to bear the brunt of it. Cheery, isn't it, to come to church on a Sunday morning to think about these things, right? But, um, Zebulun and Naphtali, these northern tribes out of the tribes of Israel, they were the first ones to bear the brunt. They then, in turn, as the prophet is looking at, they, in turn, are going to be the ones that first experience the relief. They're the ones that, having first experienced gloom, are going to be the first ones to experience joy and light, and glory, and all of the rest. Look what it says in Matthew, and this is, the, this is the fulfillment of what Isaiah predicted. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, this is very early in the ministry of Jesus, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of da-da-da-da, Zebulun and Naphtali. I put that in there just to call you know, so you'd wake up and catch that. You, you saw that, right? So that, they, that that was what, what was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Israel's whole expectation, and rightfully so, that was that when the Messiah came, there would be this turning, this complete shift from gloom and darkness and all of, all of the indignities that they had suffered, and that there would be this corresponding joy that would come in. And when Jesus comes and he's preaching the kingdom of God, we, we see that, that there should have been joy. There was joy, but, the, but it's obvious they should have recognized that. They should have seen it. 
Their joy was to have been like that of a great harvest. Their joy was to be like that of the spoils taken in war. And yet so many failed to see it when it was that right in front of them. They expected deliverance from their enemies. <clears throat> you know, a lot of times we, we say that the, the Jewish people sort of wrongly understood the coming of Christ and that they wrongly sort of looked forward to this idea of deliverance from, from enemies. That's not altogether, I, I would say that's not altogether true. Um, Look at what it says. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Right? That's the, that, by the way, rhymes with Gideon, which that's the Old Testament story that's talking about there. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So Isaiah, in, in looking forward to the time of Messiah, sees a, a warrior king. One who will actually destroy their enemies. His picture is that he that he's taking uh, and, and that, that he's taken such a, a victory that all of what's left of the opposing army is like their 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 garments soaked in their own blood, and they're just burning those on the fire. It syncs well with Isaiah sixty three. I don't know if you're familiar with Isaiah sixty three, where it says, "Who is this that comes from Basra with his garments stained with blood?" Does that sound familiar? And it's a picture of Messiah coming, and he's like this warrior, and, and he's drenched in blood, but it isn't his blood. It's the blood of his enemies, and they're like, where are you coming from? He's like, I'm coming from treading the winepress of God's wrath. So that, that image is not wrong. They expected a deliverer. They were looking for a Messiah with the strength of ten Davids who would destroy their enemies. And that happened to be at the time Jesus comes, the Romans. So they were looking at him to destroy the Romans or they were looking at him to destroy the, the Herods. And before that, it was the Greeks. And you can go on back. What they struggled to understand was that before Christ, the Messiah, destroyed their actual physical enemies, that the first enemy he had to destroy was their own sin. Because think about this for a minute. None of the people who had oppressed the, the, the people of Judah and Israel, none of those enemies were ever the problem in and of themselves. You say, well, I don't know, 400 years of Egyptian slavery, that'd be a problem. I, you know, admittedly, that's, that's true. I mean, they were, they were the physical enemies of the people of God. But you think about all of them. How many enemies had they faced through history? The Egyptians and the Midianites, all the various Canaanites and the, and, and the Philistines and the Syrians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And, and, and then you get into the time of the, the, the Persians and then come the Greeks. And, and this just goes on and on and on because the problem wasn't their physical enemies in the nations. The problem was their own heart before God, that they were sinful. They were sinful people. The reason... The northern tribes were carried off. The reason uh, Naphtali and Zebulun went through what they went through wasn't necessarily because of the Assyrians. That was just God's instrument of judgment. The problem was their own idolatry. The problem was their own sin. And they they needed to have the enemy of sin conquered. Matthew 121, this is the word of the angel to Joseph. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from the Romans and Egyptians and Philistines. And No, I mean, he will save his people from their sins. 
They needed to be delivered from themselves. They needed to be delivered from their own waywardness, their, the, the, the power of evil that was reigning in them. And they did not see that. Here was the glory and light of Messiah coming into their midst, coming to the very area that was predicted by Isaiah, and, and they don't see that. They don't see the need to have their sin dealt with. They expected God to reign over them through a divine son. Uh, this statement about Messiah is so strong, so exalted that when you read it, you might think that it was written only in the New Testament. Like if you don't know your Bible very well, when you read this, you go, oh, that must be, that must be taken straight from the New Testament. No, this is right from the, from the passage we're looking at. By the way, you'll hear the words of Handel's Messiah as we, as we go through some of this. Did, did, you, did, did some of the words of Messiah come to you earlier when we were reading the passage? Those of you that have enjoyed that, um, yeah. For to us a child is born. Da, 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 da. Yeah. No? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So I want you to notice one thing really quickly here before we press on and look at those titles. But do you notice that the solution that they're looking for, according to Isaiah, is not a, um, a new plan or uh, a new committee, or uh, a new uh, dispensation, or something like that. What are they looking for? What is, what is the promise that's being held out to them? Here's your solution, Israel. What is the solution? A son. A son. A son of David. A Messiah. The, the, that's, that's, your, that's your hope. That's what your hopes are pinned on, is this person that is, is coming, and the, um, and the government will be upon his shoulders. But there's something kind of otherworldly about this future king. So we're going to look at four quick titles that are there. Um, I'd be amiss uh, if uh, remiss, uh, remiss if I didn't catch these. But the first is Wonderful Counselor. How many have sung that and thought when you were singing it, I wonder what that means, Wonderful Counselor? I know in the song it's Wonderful, Counselor, but it's Wonderful Counselor. Um, what, What do you think that means? Well, the word wonder... We'll just attack that first. The, the word wonderful is actually the word more for wonder. It should be translated wonder rather than wonderful. It's a wonder counselor. And uh, the word wonder, you're wondering. Um, the, sorry, the word, the word wonder uh, is the closest word in Hebrew to the English word supernatural. Like there's no word supernatural in the Bible. Isn't that weird? Because... It's not super, it's God. <laughs> God's just doing it. So why, why have a word like super? But this is the closest thing to it. Compare Jesus, the, the Messiah, to someone like Solomon. Solomon was a wonderful counselor, in, in a sense. He was the wisest of all kings. 1 Kings 10.23 says that he was the wisest of all the kings on earth. But by calling the Messiah wonder counselor, it's taking that idea to a whole different level, an exponentially higher level. He is wonder counselor. He's supernaturally wise, not of this earth. Their future Messiah is supposed to come with heavenly wisdom, wisdom that they're just not even familiar. It's so high. Does that sound like anyone you know? 
Do you think they should have caught on like when Jesus came and, and, and his wisdom just uh, completely and totally confounded them? Do you, they should have put two and two together and seen that. He would also be called Mighty God. Mighty God. Now that's quite something. I, I believe that the deity of Christ is clearly foretold here. I believe that the Holy Spirit writing through the, you know, moving through the, the writing of Isaiah is telling us that Jesus Christ is God. He is God the Son. Now, did Isaiah fully understand that? I don't know. Did the people of God reading that and receiving that, did, could they picture that? I'm not sure they could. But what's clear is the expectation of the people is that this Messiah is going to directly mediate to them the very power and reign of God. At the very minimum, so, so let's say they didn't understand the whole idea of trini- the Trinity, that they couldn't completely conceive of, of that. What they, at the bare minimum, what they had to understand was that with Messiah would come and break in to their, into their experience the actual reign of the Almighty God, God in their midst. And so when Jesus comes to the region of Zebulun and Naphtali and this, and this joy starts to break forth, um, he, what is he preaching? The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is among you. It's now. Christ was there. In, God the Father was there in Christ. Is it, this agrees with Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And that's quoted quite a bit in the New Testament, but, but David was speaking of Messiah, and he was calling the Messiah his Lord, his Lord. The proper Jewish expectation of Messiah should have been that God, the mighty God, was coming into their midst, and his reign was beginning. Thirdly, he was called Everlasting Father, Everlasting Father. I assume that at some point you've, you've had the Trinity explained to you and you can properly explain. If somebody says, well, what's the Trinity? You can say, well, it's that there's one God. The Bible's clear that there's one God. But he's one God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And, uh, and they are not confused. The three persons are not confused with one another. So the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. And, and so on and so forth. And you go all around that way. And, um, yes? You're familiar with this? So is this saying too much when it says that he will be called everlasting father? Is that confusing persons of the Trinity? No. No. In fact, when you think about Jesus uh, and, and what he taught his disciples, he said, in effect, that, that the father was at work in him. Jesus said of his father, if you, if you go to John 14, 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? So the Jewish people reading Isaiah should have had every expectation that, a, that this Messiah would have a unique and perfect connection with God the Father, and therefore that the fatherly love of God his mercy, his goodness, his provision, his protection, that all of the, of, of the Father God's uh, whole essence would flow through the one who would come in his name. Yeah? 
Okay, and then the fourth title. He's the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. The proper expectation of Messiah would be that he would be a ruler who would rule as kind of like Solomon did. Solomon's like a type uh, of the Messiah, and he had a complete reign of, of at least earthly peace. And this, this Messiah who would come would transcend that, and, and, and he would bring complete and total peace, which is a tall order. How many could imagine... If I said to you, the next president of the United States is going to be called the president of peace. He's going to come in and all the divergent factions in this great country of ours will be completely reconciled with one another. The Democrats and the Republicans, you know, lying down together, as it were, you know, uh, in this pasture-like, you know. How many, how many foresee that in the next election here in 2024? If you do, you got more faith than I do. But the Bible doesn't exactly promise that. But, what, but, but with regard to Messiah, it was this expectation that with his reign, with, with that rule, that government that would be upon his shoulders, that, that it would bring in, it would inaugurate absolute, complete peace. Shalom, you know, the fullness of the wholeness of, that was lost in the garden, all of that would be restored. People would be reconciled with God and with one another and all of this which should come about through Messiah. They should have expected that. When Jesus came, you know, riding on a donkey into Jerusalem, all of these things should have been bum, 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 clicking and making sense to them. They expected such a one, but when he was born, they missed it. They, they didn't expect the expected. They expected him to reign forever. That's quite something and quite telling. Can, can, can you hear in your mind the word of handle there? Yeah? And yeah, 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 good, good. Somebody's whistling it. I like it. Yet he shall reign forever. Wait, we could just do a little number right now, but uh, I'm probably not adequate to, to lead that. Isaiah 9, 9 7a, uh, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, right? There will be no end. They should have expected something beyond, you know, the kingdom of David part two. Right? I, th- I think when you look at, at where the people of God were when Christ came, it's almost like, they were just looking for a redux. You know, they were looking for, well, you know, we've, we've had King David, but, and, and it's been a while, so we'll just get another. It'll just be like that again. Just a return to what had come before. But the, the kingdom that, that is being foretold here is not just a repeat of David. All of the failures of David, all of the failures of Solomon, all of those things are done away with, and his kingdom will last forever. There, there's no end. There's no limitation of scope in terms of its physical reign, nor in its limitation in terms of time. And Jesus came, and Jesus came making bold claims. And sometimes when we're reading the New Testament, we're tempted to read that and go, man, if, I don't know if I was a Jewish person, would I have gotten that? I mean, these are bold statements that Jesus is making, and, and they were hard sometimes for them to comprehend or to, to accept, and, and we kind of understand that. But we, we also need to understand Jesus didn't come like a schizophrenic going, I'm Napoleon. I mean, he came 
And his teaching, just on the face of the teaching, was like unlike anything they had ever heard. He was a, a wonder counselor. And with that were all of these miracles of raising the dead and healing the sick and, and driving out demons. All of that was substantiating what it was they should have expected. When, when, when Jesus can say, before Abraham was, I am, and they took up stones you know, to, to kill him because he was making himself equal to God... As, as incredible and outlandish as that might feel, look at what's being said of the Messiah who's, who is to come. There's no, no limit to, to his kingdom. His kingdom is forever. They should have understood that. In John's gospel, Jesus is speaking to the leaders. He says, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. All of these expectations that were laid in, Isaiah sets the bar so high, doesn't he? That only one sort of person could ever fulfill that. And Jesus was standing there in their midst, and they missed it. They missed what was right in front of them. Lastly, they expected God's final, I know this is a little weird wording, righteousness judgment. It's a judgment that brings righteousness, okay? So does that make sense? I'm just trying to stick really close to the language here. Uh, On the throne of David, over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. So despite all the contrary evidence, remember he's predicting this fall that's going to happen with Assyria. And so despite all that of the the people of God just being dispersed to the four winds, he's predicting that God is going to accomplish this. His zeal is going to work this. And that word, you know, that word justice there should actually be translated from what I understand, judgment. Judgment is the word that actually means judgment. So Isaiah is saying, I believe, he's saying that, my, that Messiah will bring about that eschatological judgment. And I know that's a big word, but it just means end times, right? The fi- he's going to bring about that final judgment where sin is ultimately and fully judged. And righteousness will finally reign. Look at what Paul says to the... Um, the Athenian philosophers of all people. He says, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, perhaps the final judgment doesn't sound like a happy topic or an appealing topic to you, but it was for God's people or should have been. Because what that ultimate judgment was going to bring about is that their sin was going to be finally uprooted forever. That God was going to ultimately completely not only judge them, but he was going to justify them. 
that he was going to inaugurate a time where righteousness reigns, not only because sin and the enemies of God are judged, but because through the judgment that fell upon Christ, his righteousness would be given to his people. They should have expected that. They sh- if they had been paying attention, if their hearts had been open to the word of God, they would have seen Jesus standing there, and they would have grasped it, that they, they would have understood it. And yet they did not. Now, it might seem like I'm really beating up on God's Old Testament people today. I'm not. Many of his people believed. You know, in New Testament times, there was a, there's a great number of Jewish people who came to faith. And through the centuries, others have come. And I, I don't know this to be 100% factual, but it seems like there is a movement among God's people today, God's Old Testament people. It seems, you know, maybe it's just the Internet, but you can go on to YouTube and you can watch these, these testimonies of, of Jewish people who, you know, their whole life, they, they were in darkness to this, and then all at once they've, they've come to understand that Jesus Christ is their Savior. And we pray, we pray that, that they will have their eyes open. But then you have to ask the question, how is it that we came to understand? Christian, how were you so smart? How were you so much better than the Jewish people? Tongue-in-cheek, firmly planted. That you saw it, it was so obvious to you, you looked at it and you went, yeah, well, this all makes complete and total sense. How could somebody not miss that? If you, to ask the questions that already know the answer. This is the grace of God to us. How it is that, that, that we should have had this light dawn on us. We who were of the nations, we who were the enemies of God, God in grace drew you. If you are a Christian today... John chapter 6, it makes it clear that the only way that you stand in grace today is that the Father drew you. That, that he opened your heart so that you saw the light of the gospel and you believed. And you were brought into. So it's easy for us. Well, maybe, maybe it's not. But I hope today it's been made a little bit easier. You look at the Old Testament scripture. It was obvious. It was Jesus. It was always Jesus and always was going to be. And, and by God's grace, you've been included in him. If you, uh, if you don't have Jesus, what can I tell you? Um, Jesus Christ came. The government was, in fact, upon his shoulder. They nailed him to a cross. And so that righteous judgment, that righteousness judgment we talked about, he bore the cost of that. He bore the judgment of God, All that imagery of blood, you know, and the wrath that, that Isaiah also talks about, he took that upon himself so that you could be, you know, we, we who were sinful and he who no, knew no sin, God made him sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That was done for all those who would turn and believe in Jesus Christ. And so we hold that out to you today. Recognize that Jesus is the expected Messiah. He's the only one. Turn to him. Be swept into that eternal kingdom of peace and find joy. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we are so thankful to you that we have, uh, that we have not followed cleverly uh, devised stories and myths, Lord, but, but we have come by the grace of God, Lord, we've come to have our eyes open to see that you really are the one um, uh, 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 with all of these exalted titles that Isaiah mentions, wonder, counselor, almighty God, 
everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Lord, thank you that you took that judgment upon yourself, that you bore it, that you might be just and the justifier of all who come to you in faith. And uh, Lord, we pray that there would even be today, no matter how late the hour, Lord, as your kingdom, as it, as it advances, as, as, the, as the rule of Christ continues to spread throughout the world, may it include and pull in people today who hear the gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.